Our Father, we recognise that you are sovereign, the King, uh, the King of the Kingdom. And just as uh, the rock came and smashed down every other kingdom and turned into a great mountain, Lord Jesus, we recognise that you are that rock uh, and that great mountain is your kingdom which will fill the earth. And so, Lord, we know that as the word said, this uh, is a certain thing to happen, its interpretation is sure, that this is the end uh, to which we look forward to. And we ask now that you would guide us into the truth of your word by your spirit to see Jesus, to see how we ought to respond to be filled with fear and awe and love for him and his greatness. And we ask that today that you would address our personal needs and the needs of this church and the needs of your people through your word. So I ask for wisdom uh, for myself. Lord God, I ask that you would make us really attentive to this. This would not be just something that we, uh, we cast aside, but you would really speak to us today. And Lord, we know you always speak through your word, so just open our hearts to believe. That's what we really need. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been raining for about the past 24 hours, you may or may not be aware. And you kind of get used to rain after a while. It just sort of fades into the background. But last night, just after midnight, the, the level, the audible level of the rain reached such a pitch, such a decibel level that it woke me up. It was like a roar. We have a tin roof uh, at my house and I woke up because it was roaring with rain. It was roaring with rain and so it woke me up to its reality. I had to go out and have a look. I went and checked the radar because those kind of, kinds of things excite me and then I went to bed and didn't get a great sleep afterwards, as often happens. But often in life, we don't realise that God is always sovereign over all things, but it fades into the background. That there is a God who rules over all, and he has a kingdom that is working in this world, and as we see in our text, is actually at work toppling every other kingdom that is set before it. Jesus Christ is described as a rock, and his kingdom is described as a mountain which will fill the whole earth, smashing to pieces everything that comes before it. And yet often we don't realise the reality of who God is and his rule and power over this kingdom. It sort of fades into the background like it's raining all the time. But every now and then in the text for us today, it finally reaches its crescendo. It becomes a roar revealing to us who is the king of the kingdom of God. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Firstly, we'll look at the nature of the kingdom. What sort of kingdom is this? What does it do? Secondly, we'll look at the cost of the kingdom. What does it cost to enter this kingdom? What's the great value of this kingdom? And thirdly, we will look at the king of the kingdom himself. So firstly, the nature of the kingdom. Now in this text, it's extremely interesting People have argued about this for centuries because it tells the historical truth of what happened. After Nebuchadnezzar, it tells us that nations rose and fell. And then finally, at the end, there is one kingdom which rose above all the others and seems to destroy all of those before it. Now, there's one specific truth that I want to reveal to us in this text. And the truth is this that God is the ruler over history. 
God is the ruler over history, and it is planted in historical fact. Remember that. God is the ruler over history, and it is planted over historical fact. One of the reasons people have trouble with the book of Daniel is because it's too accurate. This was uh, recorded in about 600 BC, and yet it's too accurate for the things that it foretells. People think, well, this can't be real because it's too accurate. But they're leaving out the possibility that it is the supernatural work of a sovereign God. So you've really got two choices when it comes to the Bible in general and this text. It's either written by God and he's a supernatural author of it with human uh, co-authors with him, or it's not. That's all you get. And so people have a lot of trouble with this, and let me explain why. In the text, we see uh, Daniel with this supernatural ability. None of the other wise men in the kingdom were able to do it. None of the enchanters, none of the magicians were able to come up with both the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that so frightened him and the interpretation. None could deliver it except a man appointed by God, Daniel. And in the dream, there is this enormous figure. And it's interpreted like this. There is a head of gold. And that head, we are told, is Nebuchadnezzar himself. But it's signifying a kingdom. It's the kingdom of Babylon. And we know the text says that there will come another kingdom soon after that. And in the book of Daniel, we actually see what the next kingdom is. This is the arms and chest of silver in the dream, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. And we actually see Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian during the book of Daniel. So even in Daniel's life, we see that there's two kingdoms. This is being fulfilled during the very book itself. Afterwards, uh, we see working down this great picture of a a person or an image of a person with the head, uh, with the arms and the chest. And now we get to the middle, the stomach and the thighs. This is described uh, as a bronze uh, part of the stomach and the thighs. And we know throughout history that what came after the... uh, Mede and the Persian Empire was the Greek Empire. And it took over uh, from the Persians and the Medes. It sort of consumed the empire that came before it. So that's, and that's the pattern that we see, actually. Even Babylon consumed the Assyrian Empire. And now the Medes and the Persians consumed the Babylonian Empire. And now the Greeks, which typified by Alexander the Great, you may remember him, so took over most of the known world. He walked into Babylon, the city. And they fell before him like he was a god that he took over it all and he conquered them by the age of 30. But then there's another empire, one that consumes the one before it. It's uh, revealed to us as legs of iron. And we know historically the one to come next is the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was the biggest It seems to be the most powerful. It says that it would smash all things before it because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, verse 40 tells us. And that's what the Roman Empire did. History tells us this, that the Roman Empire came and just took over all the other nations that were before it. And it was different. They seemed to absorb other nations into it. They even absorbed the Greek language so that by the time we get to the New Testament, the common language is uh, the Greek language, But the ruler is the Roman Empire. They're the ones that even the Jews are under. And we know that the Roman Empire was one of the longest lasting empires in its fullness. It lasted from about 146 BC to AD 395. This is 
about 500 years. So again, most of the empires that we think of today pale in comparison to the size of the great empire, the Roman Empire. And yet, it's revealed that it's brittle. It's revealed that it's got part iron and part clay. It won't fit together. It will be broken. And we see that actually in the first century, when the Son of God is revealed in Jesus Christ, that he comes. As it says in the text, this rock appears. And what does it do? It strikes the image. It strikes them. It says it's cut from no human hand, verse 34. It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, this mixed kingdom, the Roman Empire, and broke them in pieces. Then the whole thing came crushing down, crashing down. And it says it became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. So we're actually following both what the text says and we're following the chronological nature of history. They align with one another. This tells us that God is the ruler over history and is planted in historical facts. Charles Simeon, a preacher from the 18th century, said this. This was accurately accomplished, for Christ was born in the reign of Augustus Caesar, when the Roman Empire was at its summit of its strength and grandeur. And within the space of about 50 years from that time, his kingdom was spread, not only over Judea, but over a great part of the known world. And it was during the reign of this mighty Roman Empire that this rock arises. This rock And this kingdom, like a mountain, begins to build and will end up toppling all that come before it. The Bible tells us that this rock is Jesus and this mountain is the kingdom of God. So what is the nature of the kingdom? The specific truth is that God is the ruler over history and it is planted in historical fact. If you want to get to know the Bible, if you want to get to know God, you need to believe that. That's entry level. There's a general principle here, though, that I think we need to acknowledge as well, is that God is continuing to rule over history and our lives. Sometimes we keep God in the Bible, but we don't see him as here and now. Let me be clear with that again. Sometimes we keep God in the Bible as if we could, but we don't think that he's working here and now. But the general principle we get from the text is that God is continuing to rule over history and our lives. Let me explain it this way. There is a global sense to this. That is that the rock that is Jesus and the mountain which is his kingdom have an enormous power to them. Notice that the church, the church itself in the first century was established in weakness and death. Right? Jesus, the leader of this small group of people, which had very few, just a few women and a couple of people uh, amongst them. As he died, the great leader of this new movement was founded through death and then Jesus risen from the dead on the third day. They were frightened and in their homes worrying that people were going to come and kill them next. That's how this movement started, small, like a stone almost. And yet it grew in might very, very slowly. You see, this gospel is not dependent upon size. The news about this rock, 
Jesus himself, the one on whom if we found our life, it will be a sure and steadfast foundation. The news about him seems to grow in weakness. It seems to succeed when everything else is against it, when the might of the Roman Empire is against it. This tiny little movement called the church seems to succeed. Imagine that this Roman Empire, which actually worshipped many, many gods. They tend to consume, you know, the, the Greek gods and the Roman gods are the same. Why? Because the Romans copied the Greeks. They were just willing to include them into their empire. And yet by the end uh, of the empire, it had changed to a Christian empire. Why? How could that happen? How could people go from worshipping the, the god of the sun, you know, the god of the moon, the god of Mars, the god of fertility, the god of agriculture? How could they go from worshipping many gods to one god to the exclusion of all others? Why? Because a rock had smashed it all down. And that's exactly what this text tells us happened. And so by the time we get to about 400 AD, when the Roman Empire began to split in half, it's a Christian empire. The Roman Emperor Constantine declared himself to be a follower of Jesus. That is only possible if this text is true. How can a movement start in such weakness and death and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead with a God that you cannot see unless it is a unique work of God's Spirit? I want to point out something else that's very, very interesting. Do you know Islam has the same geographical centre as when it was founded? It's still centred in the Middle East. It's always been centred there. The major population of those that hold to the Islamic faith are in the Middle East, and they have been since its foundation. Buddhism still has the same centre, still has the same centre in Asia. Did you know that Western secular individualism still has the same centre in the West? You know, these various different beliefs or, if you will, kingdoms seem to always go back to the same place and be landlocked in one place. But Christianity, it seems, has no permanent geographical centre. It started out in the ancient Near East, in Israel, and it moved all over. Didn't it? It moved around the Mediterranean. It was then centered in Europe. Then it moved to North America. Then it's moved to the other places in the world. And the West has seemed to decline. And the faith in Israel has seemed to decline. And the faith in the Mediterranean has seemed to decline. Why is Christianity not landlocked? Because God is ruling over the whole world. And so this belief in Jesus, this Rock, which turns into a mountain, is not bound to any one place. Christianity is unique. It has no center of power amongst a particular language or amongst a particular cultural group. That's why Christians cannot say in one particular language or culture, we're better than another one. Because you know what? The West is in experiencing the fall of Christianity. And where is Christianity rising up in the East? Why is that? Because God is continuing to rule over history and our lives. That is another general principle I want you to know. So we've looked at that globally, but I want to talk about this personally now. Do you realise that every moment of your life is under the rule of God? Abraham Kuyper, who was a 
a pastor from the Netherlands. He actually became prime minister of the Netherlands. He was a pastor, theologian, started a university and became the prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. He urged Christians to see that Jesus has lordship over all of their lives, over every living, every part of their lives. He said this, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! Everything is his. Absolutely everything. If you read something in this text, I want you to know that God is sovereign and continuing to rule over history and his lives, and his kingdom is active and present today. I want you to know that. But how often do we not recognize it? I do not get up first thing in the morning. In fact, I doubt you do either. And think at every moment that everything, even the breath in your very lungs, is a gift from God. Is given to you by him. What does it say in Acts 17? For he gives us life and breath and everything. Everything that you have is from God. And so what do you owe him? Your life. Everything. He's owed the worship and affection of everyone. He invented you. Your inventor is owed glory and majesty and worship from every living person on earth. Do you know, um, up until about the 15th, 16th century, uh, people thought that the earth was the centre of the universe. Uh, they, they called it a geocentric view. And actually, the, the Roman Catholic Church uh, held this view, and they said that any other view uh, that was aside from that was essentially pagan or uh, blasphemous or heresy. A, ge a geocentric worldview, that the earth is the centre of the universe. And a, a bloke called Galileo popped up and did some astronomy and realised that actually that's not the case. Turns out that the earth revolves around the sun. The earth revolves around the sun. It seems, though, that pride misleads us personally to think that everything revolves around us. I think that's what was uh, making people think that Galileo was a blasphemer and a heretic because they were afraid what would happen if we weren't the centre of the universe. Do you know Nebuchadnezzar thought that the whole world revolved around him and he was troubled by this great image because he saw this head of gold and it was smashed to pieces by a little rock? Imagine how fearful he was that the whole world perhaps didn't revolve around him you know, at the beginning of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar was the one that went and took people, took Daniel as a youth from Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is bowed before Daniel, recognising that he is a man sent from the one true God. You are not the centre of the universe. God is. And God is in the business of humbling humanity before him. So that is the nature of the kingdom. Secondly, I want to tell you about the cost of the kingdom. And it is a valuable kingdom, therefore it has a great cost. Uh, there is a, a guy who uh, led a missionary movement. His name's J.O. Sanders. If 
you spend time around me, you'll know I've been banging on about this guy for the past few weeks. I've been reading his books. And Sanders is, is an amazing uh, figure. In fact, when he was 70, he decided he was going to start a new ministry. And he wrote a book every year until he was 89. So I'm going to tell you now, age is no barrier. I'm going to get back to that, actually. But let me tell you a story that J.O. Sanders told some people when he was 89. There was a missionary in an eastern country who went, who heard the gospel and was just convinced by God that they had to tell people in a neighbouring village about Jesus. But it was a long distance away. It was so far and this man did not even have shoes that he walked until he had bloodied feet. They were covered in cuts and blisters and bleeding. And he was about to enter this village and he was tired. He wanted to sleep before he entered the village, but he felt a prompting from God that he should continue and go and share with the people in this village about Jesus, the one true God. Feeling this prompting, he went in. He went into the village and told him a very simple gospel message. This man was exhausted. And you know what the people did? They scorned at him. They laughed. They ignored him. They rejected him. And they ran him out of town. And so this man went back to where he'd entered from and went and fell asleep under a tree. Suddenly he woke up. It was about dusk. And all the people from the village were gathered around him. And he thought, "Uh uh-oh, they're going to kill me. But then the village elders came up to him and said, we noticed that you have bloodied feet. And we've realised that you are a holy man. We'd actually invite you to come back and to tell us again that same message. And this time we will listen. And you know what? Many people believed in response to that man. Why would someone walk a very long distance to the point where they had no shoes, to the point where their feet were covered in blisters and cuts and bloodied, to receive scorn and laughter? at the message of a one true God to the exclusion of all others and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only saviour. Why would someone do that? Because the message is so valuable. Because it's true. Because this kingdom has a great cost to it because it has a great value to it. There is a costly response that we must have to this kind of kingdom. I want you to notice that in the text, the rock comes and it smashes all that comes before it. You know, you, you see the pattern that uh, the, the, great, the gold figurehead, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, they actually consumed the Assyrian Empire, but then the Medes and the Persians consume the Babylonian Empire, then the Greek Empire consumes the Medes and the Persians, then the Romans consumes the one before it. Well, Jesus will consume all of those that come before him and smash them to pieces. And that is what God wants to do in your heart and in my heart. The cost of the kingdom is Jesus wants to smash every other kingdom that has been built up in your heart against him. That's what he's in the business of doing. Sometimes uh, we think of God wrongly. We think of him only as a gentle, meek and mild man. That will help us when we call out to him. And whilst that is true, our God is also a consuming fire. And this rock 
does not hesitate to smash all that comes before it. Let me explain. There's a guy called Thomas Chalmers in, the, in an essay called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He says this, Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of, and which, if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place, would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. What he's saying here is that you always love something and fill your heart with it. Don't you? Think about it this way. What does a child want? Sometimes they just want their parents' approval. And what do they move to as they move on from their parents' approval? Well, they move to their peer approval. And then as they get older, they move from their peer approval to their spouse's approval. And as they get older, they move from spouses, their spouse's approval to their children's approval. They want their children to love them. We're always filling our heart with something. And Thomas Chalmers says the only way to get God into your life is for him to consume everything else. For him to be bigger than anything else. Like the mountain in the text that fills the whole earth, that's what God wants to do in your heart. He wants to fill it up so there's no room for anything else. That you'll love him and then everything else will be set in right order. That is his business to do in your whole life. And you know what? You and I have been loving other things our whole lives. And yet what does God want to do? He wants to replace all the other kingdoms that you might have worshipped at the altars of. He wants to replace your love of your career, your love of the approval of other people. He wants to replace your desire to be liked by others, your desire to have power over others. He wants to replace your desire just to be accepted by other people with an acceptance from God that will last eternity. That's what he wants to do. A second costly response is that God will consume all that comes before him. So not only does he want to replace it, but he wants to consume it. He wants to destroy it. He wants to smash it to pieces. I'm not saying that Loving your spouse or loving your children or desiring those things is wrong. But when that comes first in your life, you're saying no to God. You're saying you don't need God because other things are more important. It's not so much about even the way you think about yourself because you can think that you are putting God first but not do it in practice. It's more about how you are living your life. And God is in the business of smashing all those other things because our God is a consuming fire. Third application for a costly response is this, that God warns us about forsaking this kind of kingdom. He warns us, don't ignore it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? It's not worth ignoring the rock that is Jesus who wants to do away with all the, the, the rubbish in your life. Notice that it turns into chaff and is blown away by the wind. Why? Because it doesn't, won't stand. All the other things that we live for won't stand. But God's eternal kingdom will stand forever. It's a bit like a lighthouse. You imagine you're on a boat, an older-style boat with a sail, and you're part of a crew and there's passengers and there's a captain on this boat. 
And you see that there's a lighthouse out in the distance. You're out at sea. It's night time. And you can see there's a lighthouse out in the distance. And you, so you know you're near land. It's to tell you to avoid these rocks and get safely into harbour. That's the point of the lighthouse. But imagine the captain sees the lighthouse and like, no, it's fine. We'll continue on straight into the rocks. And the sailors, assuming that the captain is, knows what he's doing and avoiding the conflict that they fear from going to the captain, go, no, it's fine. We'll just keep going. And imagine the passengers looking in as the boat starts to get hit by the crashing waves and it starts to break up among the rocks, thinking, why didn't someone, why didn't someone look at the lighthouse? It was there the whole time. And so the whole ship is shipwrecked and everyone passes into the deep, deep ocean. The captain saw it, the sailors saw it, the passengers saw it, and they did nothing. And I tell you this, all of our lives that we have lived, if we do not find our hope and our heart in the rock, Jesus Christ will be smashed up upon the rock of God's kingdom if we ignore it. That's the reality of the Bible. That's the reality of God. If God is who he says he is, if the Bible is true, that is true too. You cannot ignore it. It is like a lighthouse warning us to bring us into safe harbour. If you see the light and you ignore it, you will be shipwrecked. So we've seen, firstly, that there is a nature of this kingdom. It is that God is the ruler over history and is planted in historical facts. We've seen that God is continuing to rule over history in our lives. We've seen that this kingdom is eternally valuable and therefore very costly if we ignore it. Lastly, we turn to the king himself of this kingdom. This king is revealed to us as Jesus in the New Testament, this rock, the one who will smash all that comes before him, the one whose kingdom will be like this great mountain which fills out the whole world and will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people, and it shall stand forever. This king, Jesus, will do this work how? How does Jesus achieve a work where he smashes everything that comes before it? He does it on a cross. Would you believe it? You'd think the might of God would be perhaps revealed in a different way. But the might of God is revealed by him going to a cross. How does a cross smash all the other kingdoms of the world? What power does a cross have to smash every other system that has come before it and consume them? Because it is only through the cross. It is only through Jesus taking the consequence of sin upon himself. By dying the death that we should have died, that he would open up an eternal kingdom for us that will stand forever because it is his. It is only through this that he will do it through the cross. And so it is through this, I mean, it could have been a blip in history, couldn't it? A man died on a cross outside of Jerusalem, you know, 33 AD, around then. But no, it birthed this movement which transformed the entire world. 
and is growing. It's through this cross that Jesus wants to bring this great power to bear upon your life and my life. And Jesus bears the cost of sharing this kingdom personally. Did you know that if God was just to smash every other kingdom that came before him, and he will do that in judgment. Don't get me wrong. Jesus will return in judgment. But if he was to just come in judgment rather than for salvation, then we would all be destroyed. Because we have set up our lives in opposition to God. Each one of us has done it. Every time we've said, God, we don't need, every time I've said, my way, not your way, every time we've ignored him and not placed him, what? As the sovereign God over all, the God who rules over his kingdom now. Every time we have not given him every square inch of our lives, then we have been liable to destruction. And so Jesus says and does, so he does by taking it upon himself. He says, I will receive all that you deserve rather than you know, all of your lives being destroyed and you having nothing and being uh, obliterated for all eternity. He says, I will take all of that and consume it myself. See, Jesus' all-consuming power says he will consume all of your sin too. He will receive it. He will take it. So that when he comes in judgment, we will be at his side, not at his destruction. The king himself desires to fill our lives with this truth. I want you to consider, uh, in the Bible, there's this description of uh, God's power described as springs of living water. Springs of living water. Now, what do you do with a spring? Do you bring your own bucket of water to the spring and add it in to kind of make it bigger? No, you don't do that. And particularly if your bucket of water is dirty and polluted, what would it do? Well, it would make the spring dirty and polluted too. No, God doesn't want you to bring stuff to him and add it in. He wants you to come and drink. He wants you to come and receive from him. The great mountain of God will grow in our lives as we drink deeply from the source that God has provided. Let me explain this in another way. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32, there's a, just a really small parable, and it goes like this. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Now, many of us don't know much about eagles, but as it turns out, what eagles do, they put their nest very high up in the mountains, particularly in ancient Israel. They put their uh, nests high up in the mountains, and they make large nests because eagles are big, they lay their young in the eggs in the nest. And then as they grew bigger, what would they do? They'd rough up the nest. And as the, eagle, the baby eaglets are just getting big enough to fly, what will the mother and the father do? They'll kick them out of the nest because they won't fly otherwise. They won't become a big eagle otherwise. They'll boot them out of the nest. They'll flick them out so that they'll fall a great way. So that they will do what? Use their wings. And fly, But you know what? The, the fascinating thing, and this is what it actually talks about in the text, it says if they don't fly, what will the father eagle do? He'll come and catch them. He'll be watching the whole time as the mother kicks them out of the nest. 
The father eagle will come and it will catch them in its pinions and bring them back so they can have another go the next day. And I tell you, God will push you out of your comfort zone in order to bring his kingdom into your life. The Bible talks about uh, rising up on eagle's wings for God's people to have strength. God will bring you out, and he's probably even doing this now in some of your lives. God is taking you out of your comfort zone. He's ruffling the nest. Why? In order so that you will fly. And even if you fail, your good Father God will come down and grab you with his pinions and bring you back to this ruffled nest so that you can have another go the next day. That is the grace of a God who cares for his people. That is the grace of a God who is working out his kingdom in our lives, but he knows that we cannot stay comfortable. We must be pushed out of the nest in order that we might fly. Because you know what? You're not an eagle unless you fly. Lastly, what does this text call us to do? Well, there's this fascinating response that King Nebuchadnezzar has from verses 46 to 49. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar falls down, falls down before Daniel and pays homage to God. Well, that's what he wants you to do as well. If you're wondering, what do I do? How do I get my life in order? How do I receive this kingdom into my life? You must fall down before Jesus and receive him. Honour him as God. Receive the mercy that he offers. If you want him to work in your life, you must be like Nebuchadnezzar. However great you think you are, you must be humbled before a greater king. And that is Jesus. This also calls us, very interestingly, to use our influence for his kingdom. I want you to notice that uh, after things are resolved and uh, the king you know, bows down before Daniel and gives him great gifts and makes him the ruler over the province of Babylon, the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon, he gets his friends in on it too. Isn't it interesting? Now, this is just a bit of a side point, but I think it's important. Wherever you are placed in your life, whatever influence you have, uh, that is in your workplace, maybe in your family, maybe in a sporting club, it is often better if there are more Christians around you. Because you can be praying together, you can be seeking for God's kingdom work to come when there are more of you in that space. And you, should, you ought to use your influence to do so. Now, sometimes, you know, you're not in a uh, position as an employer where you can, you know, get jobs for your friends, but you can ask people to pray with you. You can ask Christian brothers and sisters to partner with you so that what you're doing will have a kingdom effect, not just be blown around by the wind. And see what Daniel did. I think we should emulate that. I think it's an important strategy that we should take on for ourselves. Well, you notice something else. Though he uh, put his friends over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Daniel remained at the king's court. Do you know in today's society, we are very quick to change. Many of you know this, that uh, you know, my grandparents' generation sort of had one career and stuck to it. Uh, my parents' generation, maybe five or six, my generation, 
you'd be lucky if you get three years in one job at the moment. In fact, I heard it's much less in some industries at the moment. But what did Daniel do? He remained in the king's court. Why? Why did he remain where he was? Because he knew he could have a greater influence by staying when everyone else was leaving. You know, even the kings changed. Daniel stayed. He didn't go down with one empire. He stayed during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, during the reign of reign of Darius during the reign of Cyrus. Daniel was there, and there was a few others in between. Daniel was there. When Belshazzar was there, Daniel was there. Daniel was there the whole time. There is something that we need to think about here, that Daniel stayed and continued to serve God. I want you to think about where you're at in life at the moment. It might be that God doesn't want you to move on, but he wants you to stay. It might be that God wants you to dig your roots down deeper. Now, there are times, of course, when we need to move on for various reasons. But to buck the trend of our culture might be important in this very season in order that we might have a ministry that has longevity, that impacts people's lives. One other thing, and I said I'd come back to this. Daniel served God until he was a very old man. People think that he continued in his, like, his work and right until his 80s, late 80s even. I mentioned J.O. Sanders started a new ministry at 70. Some of us think that we retire and then it's done. Some of us are aiming even to retire and then just sort of fade off into the sunset. God has no plans like that for you. God's kingdom ought be growing stronger and bigger so that like Daniel, we'd have greater influence as we grow older and continue to serve God as we do. Lastly, I've just I've found this very interesting. Uh, I've gotten into trail running of late, which is a kind of a weird sport. You sort of, you know, people hike trails or people run along them too. So I've been getting into that. But I've noticed that everyone's older than me who does it and a lot fitter than I am, which is a bit disappointing. I sort of go for this jog around my house and there's this, I've seen her a few times, this lady who's much older than I am and she's much faster than I am too. So I kind of run fast when I'm near her just so I look like I'm fit and then slow down afterwards. But trial running and just in general endurance running is a very interesting thing. It seems age is not so much a barrier. In fact, those that are the best, those that hold the world records, are you know, in their 40s, 50s and 60s. And there's one guy in particular. He was an Australian potato farmer. His name was Cliff Young. You might know about this man. There was a Sydney to Melbourne ultramarathon, which was 875 kilometres. Imagine running from Sydney to Melbourne. Anyway, at 61 years old... Cliff Young got into the race. Now, all the, all the professionals, you know, got out early and they sort of slept for six hours. But what did Cliff do? He kept on running. They used to call, the, they used to call it the Young Shuffle because he had this sort of odd way of running. He ran for five days straight and smashed the uh, people who were much younger than him by about ten hours. He's an ordinary potato farmer. You see, endurance is the key to this kind of race. Endurance like Daniel had. Now, why would Daniel have so much endurance? Because he trusted in a sovereign God above him. And you and I have much greater reason than Daniel to have endurance in our lives because we know Jesus and what he's done for us. Let me close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for uh, teaching us through this text. We pray that you would uh, remind our hearts of your goodness and power.
today, that this would not just be something that we cast aside, but your kingdom would be made real and centre of our hearts and lives. And so now we commit ourselves into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.